Hello again, this is Art Matters, and I'm your host, Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. You can find us at artuk.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at artuk.org, making sure to spell out the word dot for our social handles. Do you have an opinion about one of our episodes? Use the hashtag ArtMattersPodcast to join the conversation. And as always, I'd like to remind you to rate and subscribe to this podcast. It'll be your good deed of the day. With this series, we like to have taster discussions on the intersections between art and popular culture. Today, we're discussing fashion with Amber Butchart. Amber is a fashion historian specializing in the intersections between dress, politics, and culture. You may recognize her from the BBC six-part series, A Stitch in Time, wherein she explored the lives of historical figures through their fashions. Amber is also an author, lecturer at London College of Fashion, and you may find her speaking at venues like the Tate and V&A. Lovely to have you here today, Amber. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, really excited to chat with you today. So your interests intersect in a really interesting way. Can you talk a little bit about how you find that fashion can offer some insight into politics and culture? Sure. Getting dressed is a fundamental part of the human experience, and it has been for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, So I always find it very interesting when people dismiss the study of dress and clothing as superficial or ephemeral, because really it's anything but. It is absolutely central to our lived experience. We wear clothing on the body. So clothing as artifacts has a really direct relationship with, um, you know, with the body, with the way that we live our lives. Even people who have no interest in fashion as a system, in sort of clothing as decoration, they still have to choose what they wear when they get up every day. So this is a process all of us go through. Therefore, the choices that people make about the clothing that they wear can tell us an awful lot. Historically, it can tell us a lot about societies, the way that clothes are produced and manufactured can tell us a lot um, and can tell us just a great deal about about the cultures who wear particular types of clothing. It makes you think that um, you can almost track interactions with other cultures, can't you, by the introduction of different materials or different trends that may emerge that we use for textile manufacture, um, things like linen, wool, cotton, silk, you know, they each originate in different places. And you can watch the sort of follow the movement of those across history. And along with those sort of basic building blocks, also, of course, particular decorative techniques, particular motifs, you know, there's a huge history of cross-cultural intersection going on when you look at the study of clothing. You know, it's so funny, as you're explaining all of this, I'm thinking of the scene from Devil Wears Prada, where she's like, you think you've made this choice. And it's really interesting, because I think people maybe do feel like uh, fashion is something, you know, outside of me and, and what I'm doing. But really, it is, it's something you can't help. You can't, you know, you only have access to certain clothes in stores at any any given time. So the choices are, 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 there are fashion decisions being made, whether you're actively part of them or not. 
Exactly. Yeah. So this is really, you know, it's something that we can all relate to. Um, you know, getting dressed in the morning is something that we can all relate to. And in that way, I think that clothing is a really interesting route into history because it's something that we all have experience of. You know, like not all of us have ever painted a picture. Not all of us have ever, you know, have the means to buy sort of great artworks or even not even great artworks but all of us get dressed and I think that makes it somehow tangible as a yeah. route into understanding the past. So I mentioned that you did the BBC series um, where you where you looked at um, fashion <clears throat> excuse me fashion and, and historical figures could you explain a little bit about the premise premise of that series and maybe how maybe we can go through a couple of the paintings. Sure. So A Stitch in Time um, looked at six different artworks across six episodes. Uh, so I chose an artwork for each each episode. And throughout the course of the episode, I would explore the historical backstory to the um, painting we were looking at. And crucially, um, a, a woman called Ninia Michaela, who's a historical tailor, she's absolutely amazing. Her and her team would recreate the clothing that we were looking at in the painting or in the artwork. Uh, so that was a sort of format for each episode. And why does it start with a, with a painting? Is it because that's, I, I mean, maybe this is an obvious question. That's the, the only kind of art is the way we have of looking into the past, I suppose. Yes, it gives a sort of extra element in terms of, you know, if you're trying to work out how something was made, looking at an artistic reproduction of it is quite an interesting way. Um, there's a certain amount of sort of guesswork that has to go on. You know, you're kind of, you know, did the artist, is there any sort of artistic license going on here? Because you're not looking at an exact garment. But the other thing, of course, is that the further back in time you get, clothing is actually very perishable textiles do not tend to last for a long time unless they're in absolutely exceptional circumstances. Right. So if you go back, for example, to the 14th century, which is when one of the episodes was set, we actually have very, very, very few remaining extant garments or items of clothing from the 14th century. Mm. So you have to go back to art history to be able to get a sense of what was being worn and the whole discipline of uh, fashion history was actually born initially as a strand of art history sort of grew out of art history as a way of sort of helping to date and identify portraiture through um, clothing that was being worn so the two sort of art history and fashion history as disciplines are actually very interconnected anyway people seem to look at fashion as if it's not art. There seems to be a question around, is fashion art? Which to me, it's so artistic. And I wonder why it's a, looked at as kind of a separate thing to it. Yes, it is an ongoing question. And I get asked this a lot, is fashion art? Um, um, and to be honest, I mean, my, uh, I mean, I'm very, very happy with fashion being situated as craft and design I mean I don't think we should have this kind of cultural hierarchy where we see fine art at the pinnacle and anything to do with sort of craft or design coming underneath it I, to me this is a very archaic idea um, and I, I don't understand why we continue to place fine art on this pedestal whereas things that are actually useful to us things we can actually wear things that, that are designed fashioned objects yeah. we tend to see them as lesser 
So I am happy with fashion not being art, right. but I would like to see craft and design given the same uh, sort of preeminence in our culture that fine art is. I wonder if it's changing though when you look at like the V&A has um, a beautiful fashion collection and um, the Met Museum, um, they obviously have the, the Met Gala around fashion each year. And so I wonder if maybe it is being kind of viewed more and more in, as a, as a a subject worth looking at in its own right and worthy um, from an artistic standpoint. But I do get what you're saying. Maybe it's not, I don't know, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Like fashion in museums has, is growing as a discipline and has been for sort of about two decades, I think. Um, and, you know, I mean, which is fantastic. And there are absolutely huge, you know, like the Savage Beauty, the McQueen show, you know, broke all kinds of records in terms of the numbers of people that came out to see yeah. it. I think it's fantastic that fashion is getting recognition in museums and um, uh, galleries. But again, I think it really sort of makes that point that these distinctions we make are really arbitrary between art and design, because the designed objects should also be in museums and are in museums like the V&A, which is a museum of decorative arts. It's not a museum of fine art. It's a museum of decorative right. arts. And, you know, places like the Design Museum have just expanded in London, moved into a new venue. So there is a real, you know, taste for this, which I think is really exciting and really fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So I got sidetracked. Sorry, from the, we were talking about a stitch of time. <laughs> um, I wonder if um, maybe we could look at the Charles II painting. We, we do have this one on Art UK um, and it's a, a painting of Charles II with his gardener. Uh, that can be found at Ham House. Could you talk us through this painting a bit and maybe the kind of interesting history that could be plucked out of there? Sure. Well, the reason I wanted to focus on this painting as one of our pictures is for a number of reasons. Um, it's a reasonably well-known painting, I think. It's it, Charles II is being offered a pineapple um, by his gardener. He's kind of on one knee in front of him. Uh, and I quite like that as an image anyway, the idea that someone's being offered a pineapple. I'd much rather be given a sort of bunch of pineapples than a bunch of flowers. I think that's a great idea. Um, but also Charles II has a really important place in the history of the evolution of menswear in this country. And this painting kind of really illustrates that. So that's one of the reasons, one of the key reasons I wanted to choose this painting. And also because I think the Restoration era, you know, Charles II um, uh, was the, was king after his father had been beheaded, after we had a period with no monarchy. And I think that that's a very interesting period in history. So there are a few reasons that I wanted to um, choose this painting. So um, what are the ways in which because you said he had an influence on men's fashion, would that have been on purpose? And what were the ways that he had that influence? Yes, some of it was actually on purpose, was very well thought out, um, but was also, of course, affected by many other sort of things that were going on. So while Charles II was in exile from Britain, uh, he spent a lot of time at the court of his cousin, Louis the Fourteenth in France. Now, Louis the Fourteenth was a king who absolutely understood the power of spectacular fashion and dress in uh, court circumstances. He um, 
you know, shortly afterwards, he expanded the palace at Versailles. He created this enormous kind of spectacular theatre of power. And fashion was a crucial part of this and became a really central um, element to the French economy, you know, French culture. We still think of France as the centre of fashion yeah, today. Yeah. So uh, Charles being quite influenced by this, but once he came back to the English throne, he was also quite keen to make a break from Louis and to sort of set himself up as his own, as a monarch, an English monarch in his own right. Now we have some great sources from the time, um, especially the diary of Samuel Pepys, um, who, you know, his, his diaries are a really great source for this sort of restoration period. And he writes about um, this new item that Charles II introduced to the court as a kind of court uniform. Now, this was called the vest. Um, and it's a kind of uh, slim cut uh, overcoat type jacket is how we would think of it today. Okay. You can see an example of it in the painting uh, okay. with the pineapple. Charles kind of introduced this and said, men at my court must wear this. It will help to teach the nobility thrift. So people aren't spending, you know, extravagant sums of money on their clothing anymore. Um, uh, you know, so we can be uh, thrifty and not profligate was uh, essentially his idea. Um, now, what happens now? There are lots of, you know, it's very contested as to whether, you know, he actually did kind of invent this outfit or whether it was a modification of things he'd seen elsewhere, you know, but essentially what happened was the silhouette of menswear was changed at this period. It went from the earlier sort of trunk hose and doublet, which you will recognize crucially from, you know, sort of Elizabethan portraiture, basically, um, went from that kind of silhouette for men to um, a much more streamlined silhouette that we kind of still have today. So it was a really key transitional moment for menswear that sort of set menswear on its path to the three-piece suit. Would a painting have been done at this time as a way of exemplifying this, as a way of saying this this is the look now? So is, is that maybe a, a, a purpose for some of the commissioning of these works? Definitely, that could be a purpose. But what's interesting about this painting is that Charles II is in this much more casual, much more informal outfit. If you look at a lot of the other court portraiture of Charles II at this time, it's very much about asserting his authority as a monarch. Mm. He's, you know, he's in sort of classical clothing or he's painted in armour. You know, all of these kind of um, symbolic uh, sort of symbolism of power going on to say, you know, no, he's back on the throne. He's the rightful monarch. He deserves to be here, really sort of trying to le legitimize his rule, basically. So this painting kind of stands out um, in that respect. And that's also, I think, what makes it quite interesting. Definitely. I think it's so nice to be able to look at a work and kind of pull out all of these details that you would like, for example, even the pineapple is probably a symbol of wealth in that these this would have been an imported fruit, surely, and very expensive. Yeah, um, exactly. And you still, you know, the pineapple became its kind of symbol of welcome um, because it was very expensive and, um, you know, only people who could afford it would would have it sort of served at their dinner table. And yeah, so this is, so it's absolutely loaded with symbolism. So you also took a look at um, the Arnolfini wedding portrait, uh, and that one is 
it's always a fun one to discuss because I think a lot of people look at her dress and they say, is she pregnant? Is it the dress? Uh, so what, what kinds of things can we look at in, in this work? Yes. Um, well, the reason I wanted to focus on this painting is, um, again, because it's, I mean, I think it's probably the most contested painting in Western art history. So it's a painting that a lot of people, most people have probably seen it, even if they don't know, you know, what it's called or who painted it. They're probably familiar with it. It's become such, you know, it's really sort of part of our cultural makeup in many ways. Um, and of course, there's this idea that she's pregnant. She's um, sort of holding this dress. She looks like she has a reasonably sort of distended um, belly, essentially. So, so the idea that has lasted from the Victorian era is that she must be pregnant. Um, also, I mean, the gown that she's wearing, if you actually you know look at it it is absolutely phenomenal it's very unlike anything we're used to seeing today you've got these swathes and swathes of this gorgeous green fabric um and then this detailing at the sleeves as well which is just really phenomenal you kind of think that it might be um a lot of artistic license going on into this uh painting but through the process of actually recreating the dress and looking at other sources from the time, we realised that there's actually not really that much artistic licence that's gone into it at all. But this was the kind of gown that people um, who had this kind of level of wealth were wearing, especially in portraiture. It must have been massively heavy. It looks very heavy. Very, very heavy. Well, I wore the reproduction um, that we created that was entirely fur lined as well. We used fake fur, um, of course. Um, and it's incredibly heavy. You, you, like, really feels unlike anything at all that you would be used to wearing today. We're so used to clothing being, um, uh, you know, light. And, you know, there's this huge trend at the moment for athleisure, you know, for really yeah. wearing clothing that you could even do sportswear in. It's designed to work with the body that you're hardly, you hardly notice you're wearing clothing. Everything's very comfortable. And it's the complete antithesis of that, as you can imagine. What are the layers happening under there? Are they, I see a blue layer. Was that also fur lined? No, thankfully that wasn't fur lined. Yeah, there's a blue um, underdress uh, going on under the green gown. Underneath that, there is a chemise, like a sort of linen smock. Um, and that was pretty much it in terms of what's going on uh, underneath. Mm. Um, and it's all uh, sort of bound up by this belt that you can see that falls just under the bust as well. But crucially, what we confirmed uh, as we were reproducing this, and this is something that a, a lot of art historians, kind of all art historians, understand anyways, that she's not pregnant. Yes. Um, the way that she's standing here is, you know, she's holding the dress up. And when you are holding that much weight and that much bulk, you actually have to lean back in the stance that she's doing here, which gives this effect that you're kind of pregnant. But if you look at other sources from the time as well, what I found really interesting, um, especially if you look at other uh, pieces by Van Eyck as well, like the Ghent altarpiece, for example, you see women painted in this way. Uh, and even uh, nude women like the sort of Virgin Mary people like this or other saints who are depicted, they will still have this distended belly. Mm. Um, it was a real, um, 
It was a kind of bodily ideal at this point in the 15th century when Van Eyck was working. And I found that really interesting because it's so different to the kind of beauty ideals that are touted today. Just shows you how arbitrary these ideas are and how culturally and historically specific they are. Do you know how long it took for them to make the reproduction of this dress? Just looking at the version and everything, it looks like it will have taken ages. Yes, it did take a long time. Um, They were working on all of the outfits at the same time. Um, But I think if they were doing that on its own, you'd probably be looking at maybe two or three weeks, I would imagine. I would Mm. imagine. But Ninja would have the the, uh, details for that. Yeah, that's, I mean, it is really beautiful, but I can imagine just so heavy and so hot. (laughs) It was really hot, incredibly hot. And it's interesting, if you have a look at the sleeves, where the sleeves are hanging down. Yes. You've got all of this dagging going on here. So this incredible detailing is actually made with a kind of um, hammer and chisel type, um, you know, tools that essentially are a hammer and chisel, but for working on textiles. And so you kind of hammer away and make these kind of... um, crimped you know pleated uh, sections and then fold them up it's all very elaborate and um you know just yeah very unusual to 21st century eyes so this must have been um certainly a symbol of wealth her her attire in this in this painting yes absolutely so the arnolfinis uh were italian merchants based in Bruges which was an enormous trading center at this time um they were cloth merchants I mean I must say at this point it is still a bit contested as to who the woman in this painting is and the man actually um some people think it's a wedding portrait some people think maybe this is a depiction of his first wife after she's died it's you know this is why it is still so contested um Mm. But they are from this um, uh, merchant family. So what we're seeing here is the kind of rise of the merchant class uh, sort of really shattering, beginning to shatter older sort of conceived ideas of the hierarchy of society. People are able to become wealthy through trade, not just through accident of birth. And what we're seeing in this entire painting is really a display of that wealth. So the right. layers and layers of the gold, fab- uh, the green fabric, things in the background like the oranges, um, the the windows, in fact, you know, having glass is a real sort of uh, having mirror as well. Of course, the mirror in this painting is incredibly famous. All of these things actually signify the immense wealth of the sitters. As a last thing to look at, I wonder, in terms of art movements, are there any that stand out to you from a from a fashion perspective and offer interesting insight into, you know, the culture and politics of the time? Um, Yeah, well, I think that the pre-Raphaelite era, pre-Raphaelite artists are quite interesting to look at if you're interested in fashion and history, especially. Yes. Um, Because, of course, there was this sort of real idealization of the medieval era that happens. So there's a lot of sort of historicism, a lot of romantic historicism going into the paintings, going into what was being worn um, and kind of very much fits in with the whole arts and crafts movement that grew up around, especially around the William Morris, um, who was a designer and craftsman and also a socialist activist as well. Um, 
very much this idea that so this is happening in the mid 19th century uh, you're in you know the sort of you're beginning to really see the effects of the industrial revolution uh, you know people like Karl Marx are writing it around this time as well um, and William Morris had a real sort of um, wanted there to be a backlash to the industrial revolution he wanted to go back to um, handcrafts to trades guilds to a real to a sort of idealized medieval means of production rather than this um, you know industrialized mechanized workforce that leads to you know the alienation of labor leads to this huge growth wealth inequality mm. um, so you've got this really interesting mix here of a sort of idea of romanticized historicism fitting in with a sort of you know socialist ideal for society as well and how that manifests itself through these absolutely exquisite um uh, crafts that we still know William Morris for today. You know, the sort of arts and crafts tiles, arts and crafts textiles, um, and, you know, they all have this kind of idealised, reworked medievalism to them, essentially. And that's also translated into dress. So many of the women and the men of this movement, you know, people like um, Elizabeth Siddle, who was Rossetti's wife, Janie Morris, William Morris's wife, were wearing what became known as artistic dress. Um, so they didn't want to be as heavily corseted as mainstream fashions were. It was kind of an, an early form of anti-fashion, I guess. Were they wearing this in daily life or just for the purposes of paintings? Well, they were wearing this in daily life as well, a sort of back, uh, a sort of um, resistance almost to mainstream, mainstream, very heavily corseted fashions. Okay. Um, and also around the 1850s, what we start to see as well is the invention of chemical dyes for dyeing clothing. Um, this initially happened by accident in about 1856, a chemist um, was trying to create, um, was trying to synthesize quinine as a cure for malaria. And as a byproduct of this, he discovered this um, purple dye that would not wash out. And the first kind of aniline dye was created, essentially. Um, and it kind of revolutionized the palette of fashion because prior to this, all of the colors that you create have to be made from nature. Um, you know, so from plants or from an insects, things like this is how clothing dyes were made before this moment. Right. Um, so after this, again, this was something that William Morris really heavily objected to, this idea of um, chemicals being used, this idea of the mechanization of these processes. So he was a real champion of returning to vegetable natural dyes um, and so he would write sort of tracts about how you could create dyes yourself how you could do your own kind of dyeing and so this impacted the colors of the clothing that people in these kind of um, arts and crafts or pre-raphaelite circles were wearing um, so it's re this really interesting mix of you know the sort of medieval the sort of uh, gloricization uh, of the medieval era in terms of aesthetic and in terms of means of production as well. So I'm trying to put this in perspective um, with an analogy to today. Would that be like um, maybe some women like to wear kind of 50s and 60s fashion? Would it be like seeing something like that? Um, in a way, but also in a way kind of the opposite of that because 
fifties or nineteen fifties fashions, especially, are a lot more restrictive than the clothing we're used to wearing today. You know, you'd often be girdled. There's quite a lot of foundation garments going on there. Um, so, in a way, it's like that because you're kind of harking back to the past. But it's almost like harking back to the past where um, clothing was less restrictive I guess yeah I'm just wondering if while they were walking around like this would people have found them to be really um like would it have would people have found it unusual to see them walking down the street in these fashions or would they even have been seen as dressed inappropriately um if it wasn't you know as as restricted as it the other fashions were at the time sure I think it definitely would have been seen as quite unusual but it would have been I think it was seen as quite bohemian. Okay. Um, I think that would be quite a good analogy. It was seen as, um, yeah, sort of very artistic, as quite bohemian, as as an unusual in that way. So not necessarily fully shocking, um, but certainly seen as sort of left field, outside of the norm, um, quite eccentric, I suppose. And so these fashions um, can be seen in the paintings by the pre-Raphaelites of the time to get an idea of what that looks like? It can definitely be seen in some paintings of the time. For example, there's a painting called A Private View at the Royal Academy, 1881, by William Powell Frith. And in this, um, he's actually painted women in a sort of mainstream conventional fashions of the day and also women in this kind of aesthetic or artistic dress. Uh, so you can re- really see the difference in how tightly corseted the women of fashion are compared to the uh, sort of aesthetic and artistic women. You can see the difference in the colours as well. They're much more earthy, sort of we're seeing greens and yellows in the artistic dress versus kind of a quite bright purple and blue in the mainstream fashions right well I think what I'll do is I'll um I'll on our website we'll link to all the images that we've discussed today so that people can now look at them with fresh eyes and and dig into all of the interesting bits in each one Um, and then we'll also include a little bit of information about you and you've written several books as well um, where people can find more information because I think it's such a nice way I think it's always fun to look at history in you know in an illustrated way which is why I like art history I guess yeah yeah no I completely agree I think that sounds great yeah so to see all of the images um that we discussed today and for more information please head over to artuk.org slash about slash art dash matters we'll also have a little survey there that we'd love you to fill out and um find out more information about you and why you are listening to our podcast. I appreciate you all listening today and I hope that you will join us next time.